Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. As you're turning there, we're going to be looking at a text this morning that is very familiar. And sometimes preaching familiar texts bears some difficulty. Because on the surface, it looks to pretty much say everything that needs to be said. But I think if we look with a careful eye, we can see that Mark is doing something with this familiar story that is, is penetrating for our souls, encouraging for our hearts, and may meet some needs this morning spiritually that, that you don't anticipate. Mark chapter 6, follow along as I begin reading in verse 45. Jesus has just fed tens of thousands of people with a boy's lunch. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea of the lake, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth hour of the night, he came to them. Walking on the lake. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they supposed that it was a ghost. They screamed and cried out, for they were all terrified at the sight of him. But immediately, he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart, it was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Whenever he entered into villages or cities or the countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might, they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it, they were being cured. It's familiar words, aren't they? Like most presidents, Lyndon B. Johnson had a feisty relationship with the press. In fact, it's said that his relationship with the press is what made the antagonism uh, what it is that we experience today. No one had seen such antagonism before him, and certainly we have seen worse since. After a contentious sparring with some reporters, Johnson said this. I love this. If, quote, if one morning I walked on top of the water across the Potomac River, the headline that afternoon would read, President can't swim, end quote. <laughs> Everyone got the point. But the point that Johnson made in that moment is at the heart of the text we're actually looking at this morning. 
The phrase, he walks on water, is what he was building on. It's become common vernacular for us. He walks on water. It means he's superior. She's superior. They have special superior uh, qualities. They're esteemed greatly. They're awesome. That's what we've turned the phrase walking on water into. And frankly, for good reason. The metaphor is built on a fact. Now, we're going to come to the details of this in a moment, but let me just say from the beginning that I, and I'm assuming all of the members and faithful attenders of Mission Road Bible Church, believe that this account is historical, factual, scientifically unexplainable, and to be taken at face value. This story has fascinated artists throughout history. Just do a Google search of Jesus walking on the water. You will find everything from children's flannel graphs and cartoons up to the most erudite art I've ever seen. Songs have sung its story and narrative. One of our favorite stories to tell our children and well it should be. I was walking around down, downstairs this morning during the Sunday school hour and popped in on a couple of the kids' classes and was asking uh, some simple questions about, you know, there's this lake and, and Jesus had a special relationship with this lake. At one point, he, he walked and um, uh, little Naomi Brown said, on the water. What a blessing. This event is also recorded in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 23, and 33 rather, and John 15 Verses 15 to 21, Luke omits it. All three of these highlight different details. It's like they all saw the same event. They're all recording the same event and they highlight different things that are interesting when you patch them together. If you look at this passage, you'll notice that there are three distinct scenes. If you were looking at it from, a, from a, like a play at the beginning, they say, here are the scenes, here are the characters. Scene one is on the shore after Jesus has just fed upwards of 25,000 people, tens of thousands of people with a boy's lunch. Scene two is this incident that takes place on the lake in the water. And scene three is when they land on the other side at Gennesaret. They're all together. They all work together. Mark is using these to highlight Jesus' complex and complicated and intricate relationships that he has, showing us how to emulate those and also showing us a path for discipleship, an outline of discipleship of who we should be and how we should learn from these these men in the boat, these people on the shores. So on the shore, Jesus has just fed the crowds. On the lake, he sees the disciples in a fierce wind. And on Gennesaret's shore, they land and meet people who have severe needs. So what we're gonna do, and this is in your bulletin because our PowerPoint is not working this morning, is look at three snapshots of the Savior's intentional relationships. Three snapshots of the Savior's intentional relationships. The broad range that Mark paints in this one little section at the end of chapter six shows the the complexity of Jesus and his relationships, shows us what we should value in his relationships, and even shows us what we should emulate as being a part of those relationship constructs. Three snapshots of the Savior's intentional relationships. The first is on that shore after he's just fed the crowd. Number one, he is prayerful with the Father. Prayerful with the Father. Remember, he has just fed over 20,000 people with a boy's lunch. A couple of fish and a few loaves, a few pieces of bread. He multiplied it and gave it out. Everyone ate and there were, by chance, seven, I mean, excuse me, 12 baskets left over and how many disciples were left? 12. Incredible, we're not gonna retell that story again. John adds something really interesting to the end of that um, story that Mark, Matthew, and Luke don't, don't add John says at the end of his feeding of these these tens of thousands, 
The people wanted to take him and make him king. John 6, 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. This is not hard to understand. If you were going to find the perfect candidate for a king, how about this one? One who can feed you with just a boy's lunch and feed the whole community. One who could heal any disease. One who could perform miracles. And one who has an intimate relationship with God the Father. I would vote for that man, wouldn't you? Before you're too hard on these people, have some mercy on them. Wouldn't you want to make this man king, seeing what you had seen and hearing what you had heard from his doings? But it's not the appointed time, it's not his hour. The Lord exercises amazing control over this situation here on this this shore in the northeast of the Lake of Galilee. It's getting late. John tells us it's dark. He disperses the crowds and they all go home. Look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus, that's Mark's term again. It happened right fast. Immediately happening over and over and over. These things he stitches together very fast. He's racing toward the cross. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he himself was sending the crowd away. So Jesus is multitasking here. He's getting the boys in the boat and sending them on ahead. And he's dealing with this crowd who's trying to abscond with him and make him king. Now, what's amazing to me is not that he got the disciples in the boat. There's a challenge there that we'll see in a moment. What's amazing to me is that he was able to disperse this 20,000 plus crowd. And I just want to know how. What did he say? How did he get them to leave? One day in heaven, we will have many thousands of years to ask that. The text doesn't tell us, but it does demonstrate his authority to disperse that crowd immediately. What kind of man can do that? No microphone, no no PA system, no megaphone, but he was in authority over that crowd. It's important to Mark that we understand every detail of this scene. It's set up perfectly to show us the sovereign authority of the Savior. Then he deals with the, the 12 disciples. Anankadzo, interesting Greek word. He made them leave. It literally means to force or compel against one's wishes. That's interesting. He made them go. He compelled, he forced them to go. Why? You don't force something to do something that they want to do. They obviously did not want to go without him. Now, lots of speculation. Why did they not want to go? Why did Jesus have to force them, compel them against their wishes to go across the lake? Why did he have to do that? Well, lots of speculations about this and, and I think several of them could be true. First of all, they, they, they didn't want to be apart from Jesus. I mean, I, I wouldn't either, especially after what I just saw a couple hours earlier. But maybe there's another clue. Most of these men were fishermen. It's getting dark and they're looking at the lake. And when they get out in the boat, we know they're going to encounter gale force winds. Could it have been, I don't know, but it's very likely that they saw the skies and thought, you know what? Jesus, this isn't good sailing weather. Whatever the reason, Jesus had to force them to get into the boat. And just as he exercised sovereign control over the crowds, he exercises sovereign authority and control over the men. They go. 
Now, to understand this story, we're going to need to remember some geography around the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And before we do that, I want to give you a little footnote. Let me just tell you that um, studying the Gospels is the most rewarding thing I think I've ever done. It's also sometimes the most challenging and complex Sometimes you're reading multiple authors and multiple commentaries and you're saying, this is that and this is over here. In fact, this, this week, I have to tell you, I think it was Wednesday, I had two Bible atlases out, three Bible dictionaries out, a Bible encyclopedia out, about seven commentaries, and I was trying to get the geography right. And they, they didn't agree with each other. <laughs> and I say that because a few weeks ago when we were looking at the Gerasene demoniac, I took a view, I told you a view that Gennesaret was associated with that. These are, there's multiple Gennesarets, multiple Bethsaidas, multiple Capernaums, and multiple Gadarene, which was a whole area of a county, not even a city. And I said, it's likely that Jesus came back to that area in this account. I, I think I was wrong. I think he goes across the sea, and I'll show you why next week. Uh, because he goes into the Tyre and Sidon area, which is on that side of the lake. So if you would please be gracious to my knuckleheaded study, I'm trying to do the best I can. And let me just, this is a great chance to tell you that the Bible is infallible and I am not. (laughs) Uh, Expect me to make some more mistakes. Not big ones, but just some. Here's what you need to look at, okay? Just think of a clock, all right? Think of a, this is gonna be tough for some of you younger people who've never used a dial clock or watch. Think of a clock that goes from one to 12 all the way around. You got the clock in your mind? Where we are, if you're looking at the clock, which is an oblong clock, it's kind of like the, the, the shape of a hand. Where we are for this feeding of the 25 plus, or 25,000 or so people is up here about, about, the, about the two o'clock position. Jesus tells them to get in a boat and travel to Bethsaida, which is about at the 12, 11, 30 position, right over here. Two miles. Very short boat ride. Which does beg the question, why were the disciples not wanting to get in the boat? He forces them to get in the boat. They leave. He disperses the crowd. It's only two miles. Remember that. That'll come back to play in a minute. And then he disperses thousands of people. That's not the main point of this first scene, though. We've already seen his interaction with the disciples. We've already seen his interaction with the crowds. They're being dispersed and moved out so that he can focus intently and intensely on his relationship with God the Father says he goes up on a mountain. I've been to that region. There are nothing that we would call mountains. The Greek word there means high place, a hillside. He went up on a ridge. The point is he went where he could be what? Alone. After bidding them farewell, verse 46, he left for the high country, the hill country, the mountain. Why? To pray. He left to be alone to pray. John 6, 15, recording this same event, says, so Jesus, perceiving they were intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the high country by himself alone. It's not the first time that Mark tells us Jesus' habit of prayer. Before every major decision, Mark records him dismissing himself from the crowds and being alone with the Father to pray. Wow, there's a lesson there. Before he picked the disciples in Mark 1.35, he gets up early in the morning while it's still dark, left, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. In the garden of Gethsemane, they came to a place and he said to his disciples, sit here, I'm going into the garden to be alone, to pray. And here, before this significant event of walking on water and healing and beginning his, his uh, curing ministry over on the uh, uh, Gennesaret region, in the Gennesaret region. He disappears up to the country, high country, to pray. What amazes me is that Jesus gave us the direct access to the Father that he enjoyed in these 
lonely times. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19? Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In other words, the intimacy that he shared with the Father, he, he unveiled for you and for me to have that same access. He just multiplied food for tens of thousands of people. But instead of taking a victory lap, instead of giving an acceptance speech for being elected king, instead of forming a line to sign autographs, he goes to be alone with the Father. So many devotional thoughts here, are there not? Before the significant events, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Mark shows us gets alone with the Father to pray. When you have a major decision, do, do you say, I need some alone time with God? When you have a decision of consequence, when you have an important day, an important meeting, do, do you, do I stop and say, I need to be alone with the Father to pray? Oh, we might be tempted to say something like, well, if Jesus needed to pray, what about us? I don't think that's the right question. The better question is, if Jesus wanted to be alone with his father before a significant event or decision, and he's provided us access, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? The Trinity has this beautiful inter-Trinitarian relationship that I, I'll never explain Never be able to understand. Can't wait to see how it works out in heaven. Won't that be interesting? But he wanted to be with the Father. He wanted to be alone with his God. Is there not a devotional lesson of emulation there? He's prayerful with the Father. Number two, the bulk of the story, he is patient with his disciples. You'll find that the emphasis of this passage is not so much the miracle, but the, the hardness of the hearts of the disciples who witnessed the miracle. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on literally the shore, on the land. He's returned from the upper ridge, the hill country. This time, uh, his pray, he, was, rather, he was praying alone with the Father at that time. Now he's alone on the shore. The crowd has obviously dispersed. We find out in the next verse, it's late. It's the fourth watch. That's between 3 and 6 a.m. A lot in that little description how long had they been pulling at the oars and how long had the Savior been praying? Well, we don't know for sure, but if he dismissed them right after dark, like John tells us, it's just several hours. Verse 48, seeing them, he's standing on the shore, he's looking out, Straining at the oars. We don't know if Jesus came right back to the same place on the shore. The text doesn't tell us. Remember, they're going from, from um, about 2 o'clock over to about 11.30 or 12 o'clock. He could have met them on the shore in between. In other words, but in, in any event, he's looking out at the lake and he sees them stuck. He was on the land. But we find out from Mark they were straining, pulling hard, strenuously rowing. Why? Well, John and Matthew and Mark all tell us why. They were going straight into a fierce headwind. So we'll see where they end up, no doubt, from the north and from the west. We also know that they were rowing, which means they were not sailing. When the wind is against you, sailing doesn't help. It pushes you backwards. They were rowing against it. These were fishermen. They, they understood what they were doing. And 
They're out there, remember, against their wills in a storm-tossed lake rowing hard against a fierce headwind. The word was against them, by the way, is also used of demons. It could be translated, and the wind was torturing and tormenting them. Wow. Now, when you look at it that way, my first question when I look at this is, well, why didn't they just go ashore? I mean, couldn't they have told Jesus, ah, we tried and we got stuck? I think my suspicion, because of this verb, the wind was controlling them and torturing them. I don't think it was a demonic wind. I think it was a divinely inspired wind, as we'll see in a minute. I think they were likely stuck. They couldn't move. I think God used the force of their oars against the stalemate of the wind and had them lock up exactly where Jesus wanted them to lock up. God was pounding that boat with his wind. At about the fourth watch, between three and six, let's say four or five in the morning, (laughs) if you were reading this for the first time and you would read the words, he came to them, before you got to the next phrase, you would think there must have been a boat. He must have found a little, little dinghy to go out to meet them in the bigger boat. He, he, he must have a boat that was small enough for him to control by himself. And then you read the next phrase. It's so understated. It's just almost funny. Walking on the lake, walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea. It's late night, early in the morning. Jesus sees them struggling against a headwind and he walks out to them on top of the water. I was talking to the kids this morning. One of them said, Jesus didn't have any floaties. <laughs> Love the theology. Now I have to say this. This is, we have to say this. Liberals have had a field day with this passage over the years, over the centuries. I read a couple this week. One said that he walked them on a sandbar. Can I just be gracious and say that's idiocy? Because a fisherman named Peter didn't find the same sandbar as we'll see in a few minutes. One of the more funny ones I read just, I think on Thursday, was that the theory... That Jesus was walking on ice. That that part of the lake had frozen over, except when you read uh, uh, Matthew and John's account, they they talk about the water moving and and throwing the the boat about and high waves. Unless you're, you know, uh, in the Bering uh, Bering Straits where, you know, the sea freezes in giant waves. I, I don't think that was here. That's ridiculous. You know what this means? And I need to ask you, do you believe this? Jesus walked on the surface of a wind-pounded, wave-crashing lake. Quick theological aside. I think one of Satan's chief strategies especially in our scientific age, is to get people to doubt anything miraculous in the scriptures. If he can get us to doubt the miraculous, then he can get us to doubt anything else, the history and even the message of Christ's saving work. And if he can get us to doubt the miraculous, that could lead someone to doubt the greatest miracle in the Bible, which is what? The resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. Well, back to Mark 6. There's a phrase at the end of verse 48 we need to talk about or understand. I remember for years reading this and not really understanding what it meant. It says, he came to them walking on the water and look at this, intending to pass them by. What does that mean? 
Now, I'll admit, at first reading, you have this idea that they're out there yanking on the oars and pulling against it. And Jesus is going to go by and say, what's up, guys, and just keep going. That is not what's going on here. Not at all. The phrase, he intended to pass them by, can be easily misunderstood. First, the Greek is better translated as this, quote, he desired to come alongside them. You could translate it, he intended to pass their way or come near them. In other words, Jesus walked straight to the boat. But there's something else here. I find this curious. I'm gonna tell this to you. I don't know that there's a lot of absolutism in what I'm telling you, but it is very interesting. The term intended to pass their way or pass by them is translated in the same way in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as, as uh, Exodus chapter 33. Moses says in verse 18, just listen, I pray you, God, show me your glory. And, G and God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Same phrase. Verse 21, the Lord said, behold, me there, behold, beside me is a place. You shall stand there in the rock and it will come about. My glory will pass by you. Same phrase. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. So God said, go forth and stand uh, um, on the mountain before the Lord. This is Elijah on Horeb. And behold, the Lord was passing by. I don't think those are coincidental. I think this is an exact theophany. These were theophanies, expressions of God in the Old Testament. Is there any more pure expression of God than Jesus, than God in the flesh? I think Mark is saying, this is God disclosing himself to the disciples. Same language, passing near, passing by, a divine act of self-disclosure. And this gracious disclosure met the disciples, this is important, at their most desperate moment and need. No accident. You believe he can do that for you? We, every sermon, every text we look at rather in, in our study of Mark is giving us our Christology, our doctrine of Jesus, our doctrine of Christ. In other words, we're learning his character, his attributes, his nature, his disposition, his loves, his hates, his blessings, his curses. We're seeing God in flesh and intended to piece together our Christology, our theology of Christ as we're going through here. What we learn from here is Christ understands desperate needs and meets them. You and I will never have a desperate circumstance that will be beyond the view of our gracious and good, loving Savior who sees and who knows and who cares. Ah. I wish the story stopped there. I'm glad it doesn't because we're gonna find ourselves in the boat. How do the disciples respond to Jesus walking to them on top of the lake? Well, we find out. When they saw him coming on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost, a spirit. And the New American Standard says, and cried out. That is such a wimpy translation. A better translation is, they screamed like little girls. <laughs> ah! There's a guy walking on the lake. They, is it fair to say they'd never seen this before? These are men very familiar with the lake. And there's this person walking straight toward them on top of the water. As the kids said this morning, no floaties. His feet were on the water. He wasn't up to his elbows or, or shoulders. They thought he was a ghost. This is important. They 
did not recognize him. Remember that, remember that, remember that when we get to Gennesaret. They did not recognize him. For they all saw him and they were terrified. I think if, if the sea hadn't been in the, cave, in, in the place it was, they would have hopped out of the stalemated boat and started swimming the other direction. They didn't recognize Jesus. Could have been the storm, could have been the night. I'm not so sure it was the storm or the night because they did see him walking on the water and he was close by. They were scared to death and let me just assure you, if that had been you or me, we would have been too. Then, (laughs) verse 51, excuse me, verse 49. Immediately, there's Mark's word again. He spoke with them and he said to them, this is another translation we need to edit a little bit. Take courage. Such a, a fun greeting. Take courage. It's basically, stop being terrified. Calm down, kids. Take courage. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Why? It is I which you can translate. I am he. Then he says, a second time, don't be afraid. Nothing to fear here. Guys, it's Jesus. Jesus, it's, it's me. Verse 51, he gets in the boat with them and immediately the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished, literally bewildered, overwhelmed. We would say blown away. My question is, were they, what were they blown away by? Jesus walking on the water or the fact that when he got in the boat, the wind instantly stopped. And I think the, the proper answer is yes. All the above, the whole thing. You know, Jesus had a very interesting relationship with weather in Galilee, didn't he? A very interesting relationship with the water in that lake, didn't he? I mean, if you want a PhD dissertation to look at sometime or or to to do, if one of you guys wants to take this on, look at Jesus' relationship with the Sea of Galilee. He walked on it. He calmed it. He called fish to come from the entire lake, jump into one net and break the net. He owned that lake, which is why I think he and the Father, Spirit himself, were involved in locking them up in this stalemated position where they were rowing against the wind and had no place to go but to stay there for him to walk to them. Now, if you're smart, and I know that your kids are, you would look at this and say, time out. <laughs> Something is missing, right? Right? Is there a part of this story that you're familiar with that's missing here? Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. The wind was contrary. There's that headwind we were talking about. The fourth watch, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, everything's still the same so far. They were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Exact situation that Mark just told us. Matthew adds a detail. But Peter, (laughs) but Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, Here's the test. He's testing Jesus. Command me to come to you. And I love this phrase, on the water too. I want to do that. Wouldn't you expect Peter to do this? It's just almost comical. And I love what Jesus says. And, And Jesus said, come. Come on. Peter, I love this got out of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. Jesus was not the only one who ever walked on water. Peter did as well for a minute. But 
Peter, seeing the wind, he became frightened. Now that tells us something about Jesus' command. He is in this fierce gale wind and he is just walking boldly. Didn't bother him. Peter sees the wind and he became frightened and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. This is a fisherman. Tells you the intensity of the waves. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, nice job, Peter. No, he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's gonna play in the disciples' response. Now we pick up in the same place when not he, but when they got into the boat, I guess Jesus picked the fisherman up and threw him over the, over the side of the boat. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And then we find this from Matthew. And those who were in the boat worshiped him and said, you certainly are God's son. You think? Here's a question. Why didn't Mark include this? Any guesses? Why didn't Mark include this? We know that the source of Mark's gospel data was... Peter. We don't know this for certain, but would it be any surprise if Peter said, you don't have to put that part in there. <laughs> we don't know, but he doesn't include it. And if Peter was the source, I just find it interesting. And then the conclusion back to Mark 6. Here's the main point. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. A few hours earlier, the loaves and the fish, but their heart was hardened. Wow. Just a few hours earlier, they had witnessed the most far-reaching miracle that Jesus had done to date. Feeding 25,000 or so people with a boy's lunch. Multiplying it. They witnessed, think about this. They witnessed fish produced that had never swam in the lake. They witnessed bread created that had never grown on a stalk of wheat and learned nothing from it. Their heart was hardened. Now they see a figure walking on the water they think it's a ghost. Mark says they missed the lesson of the feeding of the thousands with its authority, with its power. There's a significant contrast here, a significant contrast here. They do not recognize Jesus in his miraculous glory. And yet, look down at verse 54. Jesus is gonna cross the lake and he will be recognized by the crowd but not by his disciples. Is it possible that they were becoming so familiar with the Lord, their friend, Jesus of Nazareth, that they were beginning to miss and forget who he really was? Boy, is there a devotional lesson there for us? Can we be so familiar with Jesus that we forget the gravity of who this man is? Which leads us to the third very short scene Snapshot of the Savior's intentional relationship, prayerful with the Father, patient with his disciples. There's no scolding. There's no scolding. He just takes them across the lake. Third, he's perceptive to the needy. We've seen this in his ministry so much. It's a very short and brief point. He's perceptive to the needy. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. John tells us, and Matthew tells us both, that immediately when they got in the boat, they looked up and they were at the shore. I think supernaturally transported because here's what, here's what we're, back to our geography list. They started at two o'clock, wanted to go to 12 o'clock and they're gonna end up down at eight o'clock. So think of the wind. This, they wanted to go northwest and the wind pushes them south and west. They land at Gennesaret, the region of Tyre and Sidon, which he's going to pick up in the next chapter. Jewish territory, because he begins uh, his immediate debate with the Pharisees again. Verse 54, when they got out of the boat, here's Mark's word again, immediately people recognized him. 
Mark writes so deliberately. He moves from they didn't recognize him and thought he was a ghost to they bland and is immediately recognized by, by the crowds. This is a, an indictment against the disciples. In other words, if anyone should know the truth about Jesus, it ought to be his disciples then and his disciples now. They recognized him. It's an area Jesus had been to before. Verse 55, they ran about the whole country. The rumors are going. Jesus is here. He's in Gennesaret. He's in Tyre. He's around Sidon. Bring your sick. So they began to carry here and there, everywhere he went, on their pallets, those who were sick. Where sick there can mean paralyzed, sick, any kind of infirmity. To the place they heard he was. The familiar scene, the word spread so fast that Jesus couldn't walk anywhere without him being surrounded by people who wanted and needed healing. No doubt he had been there a few months earlier. Perhaps it's not a stretch to think that people heard about him who were sick, maybe paralyzed, maybe lame, maybe blind, maybe deaf, heard that he was there, heard what he had done and he had gone and they were in utter despair. Now he's back. And you can imagine the frenzied flurry of let's get Uncle Bill, let's get my daughter, let's get my son, get me to him. Verse 56, and wherever he entered the villages or cities or countryside, big places, middle-sized places, small places with just a few people out in the fields, they were laying hands, they were laying the sick, rather, in the marketplaces and imploring him that he might just touch, they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Interesting, why does it say that? Why does it say that? Well, you'll remember just a few months earlier, Jesus was walking in the Capernaum area and a woman with a, 12-year hemorrhage, came up behind him and did what? Touched his cloak and she was healed. Now, this didn't become an anonymous event. He stops, recognizes it, discusses it, extols her faith. Everyone knew she was healed publicly. There's a crowd all around him that she was healed because she touched his robe. You think that word got out? That's what they were doing. I just want to touch him. Which in God's sweet, sovereign, patient kindness is a display of their faith in him. And as many as touched it were being cured. It wasn't just the woman with the hemorrhage. Jesus was perceptive to the needy. Listen, he knew they were taking advantage of him. He knew that most of them were operating out of selfishness. He also responded in faith to the people, responded to the faith of the people who just wanted to get near enough to touch him. Perceptive to the needy. Can you imagine what his days must have been like? He probably had to hide to sleep. And he's so patient, so perceptive. Job says, God alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down and on the waves of the sea. God walks on the waves. Jesus walked on the waves. Jesus is God. I hope there were a lot of devotional moments in there to kind of land your heart on, but I typically push my chair back and I look at this and say, what are my takeaways? Can I just tell you mine that I was able to just say, Lord, I wanna, I wanna think about these things. First of all, Jesus, number one, Jesus is supernatural. I mean, we've always, we say it every week, but he's truly God in flesh. Full disclosure, 
I've been to the lake of Galilee. I've been to the Sea of Galilee a few times. <laughs> and I tried to walk on it. <laughs> and it didn't work out so well. God walks on the waves. Job says in Job 9, Jesus walks on the waves. He's God. Secondly, I look at Jesus in his time with the Father. Just remember that Jesus is a part of the Trinity. He is a member of the Trinity. We worship a triune God. Be careful when you over think one member to the exclusion of the others. It may be fair to say that one of the most forgotten members of the Trinity is the Father. Recent years with the charismatic movement, we're all talking about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about that. Jesus is obviously the focus and should be the focus of our faith, has been since the founding of the church, but read Romans 8. The Father predestines, the Father chooses, the Father calls, the Father of the Son is the one who justifies, who sanctifies, who glorifies. To him, to the Father, be all glory for now and all time forever. Amen. If Jesus gave focus to the Father, so should we. Thirdly, Jesus is aware and cares about our weaknesses. Wow. Jesus is aware and he cares about our weaknesses. He cares about our struggles. He cares about our distresses. He cares about our, our difficulties, our trials. But I have one more fourth. And this is, the, I think, the crux of the issue. I think this is what Mark is highlighting. This is what I so value in this passage. Number four, Jesus is patient with our lack of faith. He didn't get in the boat and say, you missed it. You should have learned a few hours earlier. You missed it. Let's go back to school. He didn't get 12 new disciples. He was patient with them. As we continue through Mark, you are going to see how much more patient he is with these men, which should remind you and me of how unspeakably patient he is with our lack of faith. What a God, what a Savior. He is the Savior who offers salvation to all who will believe. Why, if you haven't come to him, why, why would anyone not come to this man, this God in flesh, who would say no to this kind of Savior? Who would be crucified for the sins of those who believe, who would raise from the dead, victorious, who sits right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Wow. What kind of fool would say no to that? What kind of foolishness would say no to that? If you want to talk about what it means to be a Christian, to have your sins forgiven, to come into fellowship with a holy God who is rightfully angry with you and your stiff arm rebellion to him. Our prayer was gonna be open in a few minutes. Please, please come and talk to someone about the health and destiny of your soul. Please.